0: Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Luke. We're in chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent... You will all likewise perish. Or those eighteen on whom the tower and Shalom fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jeriz- Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, For three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Amen. You can be seated.
1: Amen. Well, let me read this again. Luke 13, we read often repeat scripture uh, just so that we can continue to be familiar with it and know uh, the fullness of everything that's here for us. So starting in verse 1, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. All right, so this opening section, we kind of have two sections here, obviously, verses 1 through 5, and then we have the parable in verses 6 through 9. And these, these sections go together. It's really important that we read them and, and, and walk through them uh, together with one another. Um, because in the beginning, this first section, Jesus is talking about suffering and judgment. Um, but then he tells this parable to help us to understand that even though suffering exists and even though judgment is necessary because of the holiness of God, we have a God who is gracious and compassionate, who is slow to anger and abounding in love. And that's why he tells the parable in here. So we get a, a full view picture of kind of God's dealing with his broken world through these uh, verses this morning. And so we have this story that starts the whole thing. These, these people are there and they tell him, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice, okay? This is a unique situation. This is a, a, a place where, where Luke's writing brings us something that nobody else brings us, okay? Because nowhere else in all of the New Testament does anybody talk about Pilate mingling Galilean blood with sacrifice, Nobody talks about it. Okay, so actually we don't have a lot of detail about what happened here. But what we do know and what we do understand is that there were Galileans who are people that lived to the north of Jerusalem, right? Galilee is where Jesus did a lot of his ministry. He was from Nazareth of Galilee. Galilee is a region up around uh, a lake. And most of Jesus' disciples were Galileans. They were all fishermen on the lake. And that was just a region, right? So they're, they're telling the story about how Pilate had killed some Galileans, apparently while they were worshiping, okay, he mingled their blood with their sacrifice, okay, so during a worship service, this happened yesterday, during a worship service, evil, corrupt, selfish, wicked man came and killed people because of their worship, okay, I don't know if you saw that in the news yesterday at a synagogue, that 11 people died, I think five or six or seven more were injured, because an evil, wicked, hideous human being came and killed them because of their worship, okay? And so they tell Jesus this story, expecting Jesus to give them the answer that most of their religion has given them to this point. The answer they expect for Jesus, or from Jesus, is something to the effect of, yeah, yeah. They deserved it, okay? That's, that's kind of what they were expecting to hear from Jesus, okay? The reason that we know this is because there are other places in the New Testament, in particular in the Gospels, that show us some of the expectation that suffering is attached to personal sin, that when you do bad, bad things happen to you, and so that therefore if bad things happen to these Galileans, then they must have been bad, okay? Turn with me to John 9. We see a situation where this uh, predisposition, this idea about sin and suffering is made obvious through the disciples and the question they ask of Jesus. Okay, so in John 9, we see Jesus pass by a blind man. John 9, 1 and 2, as he passed by, he saw a a man blind from birth. Okay, and verse 2, the disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The cultural and religious presupposition of the disciples' day was, if this man is on the ground, a blind beggar, then somebody had sinned to put him there. So they wanted to know from Jesus, was it his sin? Is this punishment for his sin? Is his physical ailment punishment for his sin? Is the fact that he was born this way punishment for his parents' sin? Which one is it, Jesus? Why is the punishment fallen on this man? And Jesus answers in verse 3, nope. Jesus doesn't give the disciples the neat and tidy little answer that they even hope for. He doesn't say, yeah, it was the parents' this physical defect that this man suffers from fell on him because his parents sinned. You're right. He doesn't. He says, nope. And he adds a little extra. He says, the reason this man is born blind is so that God could be glorified. And then he heals the man. Right? In that situation, that's what that man was blind for, was for the glorification of God through his healing. And so Jesus is clear to the disciples. Sin didn't cause... Personal, individual sin did not cause the blindness of that man. Okay? And then he says the same thing in our passage. He says, The whole thing went down with Pilate. Do Do you think that's because the Galileans, the ones that died, were worse than the other Galileans? And Jesus says, I tell you, no. I tell you, no. Jesus vehemently stands against the presupposition of a culture and a religion that says if something bad happens there must be somebody and their personal sin involved in it and Jesus says no and then he repeats it right like anytime there's repetition from Jesus or anywhere in scripture it is a reinforcing of the same point Jesus says just in case you guys missed it in case my no nope, wasn't big enough I'm going to tell you another story and he actually brings up 18 people on whom the tower in Siloam fell okay Again, we don't know a lot about this. Luke's the only one that gives us this information. The Luke unique content is helpful for us because we get another perspective, another viewpoint, another scenario. But apparently a tower fell over and 18 people died. Okay? And Jesus brings to them the same uh, presupposition. He brings to them the idea that the ones who died in there were worse. He says, is that the case? Did the ones who who died in the tower... Were they worse than everybody else in Jerusalem? And again, Jesus says, no. Okay? So he's reinforcing this reality that suffering in these situations is not a judgment for personal sin. Okay? Now, we need to understand broadly that that suffering is talked about in a lot of different ways in different situations all over the scriptures. Okay? Okay? And the sufferings that Jesus is talking about here, the suffering of the Galileans whose blood was mixed with uh, their sacrifice by Pilate and then also uh, the folks in Jerusalem who died when the tower fell on them, these are sufferings that are not sufferings due to personal sin. But sometimes we do suffer for our personal sin, okay? As a category, we would call that just suffering, right? Right? We would call that just suffering. When your foolishness leads you to dumb decisions, okay, sometimes you will bear repercussions for those dumb decisions, the sinful decisions. That suffering that you bring on your own life because of your own sinful decisions is just suffering. That's what happens in the world, right? A simple illustration is that you speed and you get a ticket and you suffer however many hundreds of dollars for the ticket that you have to pay, right? That's suffering for a wrongdoing that you did, right? Sometimes we put our lives in scenarios and situations where we're going to physically reap uh, the penalty of what we do with our sinful decisions, right? The world is broken, yes, but we are broken too, and often our own personal brokenness, our own sin, will lead us into just suffering. But there's also unjust suffering in the world. That is suffering that is not deserved because of your personal sin. Okay? It isn't a repayment because of your personal sin. It is often the result of somebody else's sin. It's unjust suffering, like this situation with Pilate. The reason the Galileans suffered in this scenario is because of Pilate's sin. Okay? The reason the people... Yesterday in the synagogue, and the family members and the community that were affected by that, the reason that they are suffering is because of the unjust sin of another being visited upon them. They didn't deserve it, Jesus says, right? It is an unjust suffering. We also see in the situation with the tower in Siloam, that was a freak accident, right? And we are not. Uh, unaccustomed to death through freak accidents, right? This is suffering that we see in the scriptures. This is suffering that we see in our own world. In all of human history, we've seen this suffering. That often suffering comes on us because of shocking, sudden, abnormal situations, right? Like normal sickness and normal death, we understand and we're going to suffer those things. But abnormal death, an abnormal ending of a culture's life or people in a culture's life, like that, that is an abnormal situation. And Jesus says that is not due to their individual sin, right? For us, this would be akin to saying any kind of natural disaster is due to some kind of region's bad sin, which some really, really foolish, should-stop-talking type people on Christian television have said things like that. Um, and it's, it's hideous. Okay? It's, it's just you know, for like the panhandle finally got what they deserved. I mean, like people do that in the name of God's word. And they stand against what Jesus is saying to us right here in this passage. Jesus would confront them and say, you think the panhandle worse than the rest of the state? I tell you no, is what Jesus would say. Okay? So anytime you hear that junk... Make sure you tell the people that are close to you that that guy's an idiot or those people are stupid and they don't, believe, they don't agree with Jesus and then take them to Luke 13 and show them the truth. Say, look, the, something just like that happened in Jesus' day and Jesus said it wasn't because they were sinners. It wasn't because they were worse than everybody else. Right? Help clarify that for people because some folks won't look to Christianity because they hear that stuff out there and they think that's what we believe and it's not. It's not what we believe. Jesus says no. So in these cases, Jesus is very clearly saying that suffering isn't what's bringing these situations, or that sin is not what's bringing these situations. Now, we need to understand that broadly, sin, the brokenness of the world, the cosmic rebellion of God's created people, has put in place a, a fractured and, and disjointed universe Uh, that sin was never God's glorious idea for the world, but it was our idea, and that because of our sin, death has entered not just our bodies, but the whole world now. And so we have decay and death and unnatural disasters and freak accidents and unjust rulers and people who should never have the means to hurt other people, being able to get the means to hurt other people, and then doing it because of their wicked hearts. We have all of this brokenness because of the the broad reality of sin, okay? But what Jesus is trying to help us understand is that apart from a just suffering for our own sin, which we talked about a minute ago, suffering that comes in our life is not judgment for individual sin, okay? Okay? And you need to know this to tell the world this, but you also need to know this for your own experience, okay? Because the promise of the Christian life is that you will suffer. The promise of pretty much everybody's life is that we will suffer, but Jesus said in particular, Paul repeated it as as well, that, that to follow Jesus means to endure suffering. And so whether it's happened yet or it's happening now or it will happen in the future, you will have to face suffering as a follower of Jesus. And when you face that suffering, you need to remember, you need to remember, if it's unjust suffering or unnatural suffering or suffering for righteousness' sake, it is not God's judgment on you, right? Because often when we face a bad situation, we can look at that bad situation and say, oh, what did I do to cause this, right? Like, if you've ever dealt with the death of somebody near you, part of the grief process is to think about what you did wrong or what you could have done or should have done differently. Okay? This is just a reality of grief. It's part of how we process things. And when we walk through that process, we need to remember Luke 13. We need to remember that Jesus is not saying to us, you did something bad, therefore your dad died. He's not saying that. Okay? that is not the truth but, this, but the devil would like to lie into your ear and to tell you that and to spin you into all sorts of craziness okay? we also need to know that in our suffering because Jesus' judgment is not on us that it actually shows us this amazing picture that Christ himself endured suffering to remove judgment from us Okay. Because Jesus, who lived perfectly, who never cooperated with the broken order of the world, right, who never rebelled against God's created intent, endured the greatest suffering that any human has ever faced. And so the righteous one faced the wrath of God so that me, the unrighteous one, might be spared his judgment. Right? If you're a follower of Jesus, no matter how much you suffer or where you suffer or when you suffer, you need to remember your judgment is in the past. It's on the cross of Jesus Christ. You are not currently under God's judgment because it fell on Jesus. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing. You don't even have to fear decay. You don't even have to fear how God will I end up passing away you don't even have to fear being persecuted or like these Galileans being killed because of your religious practices you don't you don't have to fear these things because fear is connected to judgment John says and when judgment is gone all we know is that there's love there perfect love casts out all that fear and so Jesus is just exceedingly clear here With the repeated story, he helps the clarity come so strongly that the suffering of these situations, the unjust suffering and the abnormal suffering, were not because these people were worse people than other people. It wasn't because of their individual sin. But what's interesting here is that Jesus, in the midst of trying to bring this comfort, does not shy away from the truth that judgment does exist. Okay, In both verses 3 and 5, after Jesus says no, I tell you, he says this, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He says that twice again, to be clear. So Jesus is saying here, and we can't miss this, like these people didn't suffer in these ways because they were worse than you or worse than anyone else. This here wasn't judgment. This is the sad and broken reality of living in a fractured world. But this suffering does bring attention to an unavoidable truth and the end of all mankind, and that is death. When we see death, it heightens our awareness. We wake up and we go, right? Oh, man, I got better go hug my loved ones right now. That's what you do after a funeral or a memorial or when you see the tragedy on the news, that's your response. Often people get up and speak after those types of situations and tell you, go love your family. You don't know how much time you have left, right? When we see suffering in the world, especially large-scale suffering, where a lot of people die at once, it raises this awareness. And we suddenly are like, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm not immortal. I am not, in fact, the way that I live pretty much every day of my life. I am not, in fact, immortal. I will have an end, as all men and all women have for all of the history of the world. And so because of this world and the fact that it still lies under the curse of sin, we know that everyone will face death. And so Jesus says this, and he says, if you do not repent, you're going to die. It's a strong and straight truth. Jesus doesn't pull punches here. He comforts with the truth about suffering, the reality that sometimes it just simply happens because the world's broken, but he does not shy away from the truth that if you do not repent, you will die. And in particular, your death will be like theirs. And that doesn't mean you're going to be killed by Pilate, and it doesn't mean a tower is going to fall on your head. It means your death will be sudden, and it will be over, and your opportunity for repentance will be gone. Because that's how death happens. It doesn't warn us ahead of time, knock on the door and say, hey, get your schedule out. What works for you? Right? It comes and it's final. That's one of the things we hate most about it is the finality of death and the fact that we know now that there is no time left for repentance. And so Jesus says, unless you repent, you will not, after death, get a second chance to turn to God. It's over. Time is up, and judgment is all that is left if you are not in Christ. And so the important thing here is to say, well, then what is repentance? If repentance is the only thing that saves me from that kind of ending, then what is Repentance. What is repentance? And Jesus proclaimed repentance from the beginning of his ministry. Mark 1:15, he said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. He said, repent and believe in the gospel. Jonathan Pennington on his commentary for Luke 13 says that repentance, which is turning from ourselves and our sins toward God, is the avenue through which we receive forgiveness of sins. It is an essential part of the gospel that Jesus preaches. The only alternative path of repentance and forgiveness is perishing. And so we see very clearly in all of Scripture that repentance is a turning. It's a turning. It's a changing. It's a moving. It's a going from one focus to another. In particular, it's the focus of the self to the focus on God, the focus of our sin to a focus on righteousness. It is a change in heart that determines a change in direction, not just simply a change in action. And we see that the... Calling to repentance is repeatedly put forward by Jesus in the Gospels and again by Peter when he preaches in the beginning of Acts and again and again and again by Paul throughout the book of Acts and the other places where he preaches. God calls us to repent from our sins, to turn from ourselves and to look to him. And the other side of repentance is belief. We don't only repent, we repent and believe. We repent of ourselves and our sin and our wayward ways and we believe in Christ and His way. We believe in Christ and His work. We believe in Christ and His death. And we understand that that death is the death that is in the place of my death. So that now my death is transformed. My death is no longer the double death of death physically and death spiritually but now it is simply the passageway of physical death into eternal life. It means that through repentance, I have a hope of not just simply seeing an end, but rather seeing a begin, a beginning. And that hope is alive through Christ and what he's done. And so Jesus does not pull punches here, right? It's 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 tender than tough. Understand what suffering means, but understand that God is just. God is just. And if you do not come under the shed blood of Jesus Christ, there is a pending judgment awaiting for you. And then when it gets heavy, right? Like right now, when it gets heavy, when judgment thought is in the air, when, when, when the, the, the significance of death is weighing down on the crowd, Jesus then opens his mouth and he tells the parable. Right here in the midst of judgment and calling for repentance, this parable is added to ensure that there is a full view of God, that there is a a great robust understanding of who it is that is calling us to repentance. Because you see, the gospel and God's call to repentance isn't just some stern command from God who sits in heaven angrily saying, you better get it right, son. We need to understand that is not the call to repentance. It is not God angrily standing by just waiting to smack us down, right? This parable shows us that there is a God who is patient with the world that he has created. This parable shows us that God has grace toward us. This parable shows us that it is not the judgment of God that leads us to repentance, but rather the kindness of God. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance. So we see this man with the fig tree, and he has every right to expect figs from his fig tree. I mean, it's a fig tree for crying out loud. He should get figs from it. And for three years, he doesn't get figs, right? And he's annoyed. He's like, Why don't I have figs? And the vine dresser says, Just wait a little bit longer, right? We see in here a, 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 a picture of intercessory prayer we see in here the picture of christ's experience with his broken people we see in here the long-suffering nature of a god who says i will endure even though you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing right and all of scripture gives us this amazing picture right we see all throughout way back in the old testament we see again and again the refrain about god that he is slow to anger that he is abounding in love that he is overflowing in compassion, that he has mercy and kindness for those even that aren't producing the fruit that they should be producing. His Israelites, his children, the ones he called out and made his own, the ones he performed miracles for in the desert and at the passing of the river in Egypt so that they would come out and be his people. Again and again, God is patient. I want you to hear a lot of times here in the Old Testament where this is being communicated so that the people that are following God can understand who he is. Numbers 14:18 says, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. The children of Israel are told that God is just, but God is gracious. He's patient with you it takes him forever to get angry and to say finally that's enough and to bring judgment he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love the psalmists understand this it's repeated again and again Psalm 86 15 but you O Lord are a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness Psalm 145 8 and 9 The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Again and again we see this. And even after Israel was delivered, wandered through the desert and then given a new home, and they set up their new home, and they had their kings and their rulers, and those rulers were wicked and evil men who set up idol worship in different places, and the kingdom was divided and fractured because they couldn't see worship of God as the central reality for them. Some would rebel and try to set up their own kingdom. And still, in that divided kingdom, there was wickedness and evil. And we know that eventually judgment came in the form of exile. That God took His children away from Israel, their own home, and brought them first through the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, brought them into captivity, and even. Then God continued to communicate to them. I love you and I want you to be mine. I told you that this was going to happen. I was patient and I endured. But I am just. But still I want you to come back to me. And Joel was one of the prophets from around the time of exile or return from exile. In Joel 2, 12 and 13, he says this. Yet, even now, even after all this sin, even after all this rebellion, even after I sent you prophet after prophet after prophet who warned you to turn from your wicked ways and repent and come to me, even now declares the Lord return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So God's gracious kindness is on display in his patience with his people, and God's gracious patience is on display in the way that he is dealing with our world today. God is gracious, and God is patient And the Old Testament scriptures point us forward to a day where God's gracious patience would be displayed in a way that nobody expected it to be displayed. That when Christ came, he absorbed the judgment of God on himself. That We've got to understand this. Even the people that were actively murdering Jesus were people that God was pursuing with loving kindness. When on the cross, Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Right? And when he died, one of the centurion's eyes opened. Remember this part? Jesus cries out, gives up his life, and dies on the cross. And the centurion, looking by, says, this was the Son of God. I've never seen anybody offer compassion while being murdered on a Roman cross. I've never seen it before. His life was transformed by the kindness of God that was exhibited through the reality of Christ in my place. That's the long-suffering patience and kindness of God towards you. That Jesus loved the broken and the brutal. That he endured the scorn of men and the rejection of friends. And that he died to save the very people who were killing him. and We see the truth of this gracious patience as it begins to transform and change us. First, it changes us through repentance, that we are led to repentance because of the kindness of God, and then it transforms us toward the character of God as his patience begins to, to exude from us as the fruit of Jesus Christ comes about in our lives. That we become then the kind of people that patiently endure the sin of other people. That we become the kind of people that can overlook the sins of others. That we can actually live by the mantra, love covers a multitude of sins. That I know that people sin against me. That I know that attitudes are harsh toward me. That I know that people have hurt me and wronged me and bruised me and wounded me. And I forgive them because Christ has forgiven me. And in that position, with that type of character, God is putting on display his very own character of patience and kindness to the world. Right? This is why we get out in the world and show people patience and kindness. Okay? I had a friend recently who lives pretty crazy, and he ain't apologizing about it. And he started to Instagram stalk me. And recently we were sitting down and he was like, Hey, you're pretty involved in a church. And I was like, a little bit. Kind of? Yeah. He's like, "Cool. What what what's that all about?" I'm like, "Well, I'm a pastor. I do this stuff, you know." And told him the gospel and I'm like and one of the first things he said to me, crazy. He goes, "Man, I can't believe how patient you are with me." If I would have known this, I would have been a lot more shocked before. You don't even treat me like I think other people like you would. And my answer to him is do you know how patient God's been with me? That's all I had to say. It's like I'm not equipped with anything. I just look at God and He's just enduring a scumbag. And I just try to do the same thing transformed by Jesus, showing you the same thing. So pray for my friend. I want him to meet Jesus. So our cry as we see this, listen, the truth of judgment is not mitigated, but the patience of God shows us his willingness and his desire to forgive. Right? We must know God will have the final word. And you will have the final judgment. Jesus says, unless you repent, you will die likewise. Okay? Those who do not cover themselves in the blood of Jesus will have to face the judgment of God on their own because it will still be in their future. For those who believe, it's in the past. For those who do not, it's in the future. And that's a scary day. But we need to understand that God's way of telling those who have judgment in their future to get it into their past is not through anger, right? It's not through visiting them with punishment here on the wor- in, the, in the world, right? It's not with lashing out at them for their evil deeds through confronting them as idiots. No, <laughs> it's through Jesus who comes close, who goes to di- dinner, <laughs> right? Who embraces the sinners, who has conversations with people he shouldn't have conversations with, right? He pursues and invites people towards repentance. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And so I pray that, that God would transform us into the kind of people that would not will that anybody should perish, right? God, take that dark heart in me that says, good, they deserved it. Take that out. Right? We don't have to lie. We felt that. Okay? It's okay. Safe place. We felt that. Good he deserved it. Good she deserved it. Good those people deserved it. Right? We've been there. Let's be honest. Jesus, take that heart out of me. Give me a new heart that says I don't want anyone to face judgment. I don't want anyone to suffer because of sin. I want all people to repent and come to faith. I want to close with a bit of a lengthy passage from Second Peter chapter 3. It starts in verse 8. You may have heard it before. Peter says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Talk about the kindness of God. as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. And skipping the verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for the kindness and the mercy and the compassion that you have shown us. We understand when we see our sin rightly that we actually do deserve judgment. That our darkened hearts, that our foolish minds, that our rebellious deeds, that our selfish ambition, that our dismissal of others to prioritize ourselves, that our greed and our lust and our gossip and our racism, God, these things deserve judgment but you haven't given them. You've given us mercy. Oh, that we would truly see the kindness of our God in the coming of Jesus. That we would understand his patient endurance with us so that we might be people who patiently endure the lies and the sins and the messes of others. Teach us compassion. Lead us toward tenderheartedness Help us not to divide the world into us and them, creating enemies everywhere and being happy when they have troubles. God, make us like you who has looked down on the world that is full of rebels and enemies and has said, I don't want any of them to die. I want them all to believe and to be forgiven. God, would you transform our hearts to be like that, that we could look at suffering and judgment in the right light, and that we would walk with you in kindness, understanding your kindness to us knows no bounds. We thank you for this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.